Our lives intersect the lives of other people, groups, or even whole governments. What happens next is what I explore in this podcast. Welcome to Intersections. I'm Brett Dickerson, your host. talking to someone who I really didn't know until I went to the Black Lives Matter rally and covered that, Tamaya Cox. You're a local attorney uh, here in the city, and you were one of the speakers at Black Lives Matter rally uh, here just this last Sunday. And so, Tamaya, tell me what that was like. I know what it was like to sit out there and listen to you, and I heard some... I'm going to ask you a few questions about some of the things that you said there. But uh, first of all, just uh, what was what was it like to stand up in front of that large of a crowd? You know, it was pretty much uh, pretty much people, a uh, pretty impressive group. I'm, I made it a point. There were some empty chairs, so I just sat right in the big middle of, of the crowd right there. I got some great shots of people speaking. It was a, mostly people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, there were, I was like the grandpa out there, kind of. Uh, what was that like speaking to that big of a crowd? It just filled up the whole plaza there in front of the Harkins, didn't it? It, it was a great moment, and I think most importantly, it was a great moment for Oklahoma City and the state yeah. of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. At a time where Oklahoma may not be on the map for a lot of good things, uh-huh. I think that was just a great opportunity for everyone to see that Oklahomans come together when it comes to right. race issues. Um, But for me, it was a surreal moment. I'm very, very fortunate that I get to speak at a lot of events. And if it's one person I'm speaking to, or if it's in that case, about 2,500 people I'm speaking to, it's always a great opportunity. But to stand there and just the sea of diversity, a sea of young folks really trying to make a difference and Mm -hmm. trying to be impactful, that's always a great moment. I've been um, working in civil rights and civil liberties about for the last decade and so it's really great to see kind of where we've been at least in my past experience so I was really honored and privileged and most importantly humbled to um, be there and be able to speak and just share a little bit of different insight and perspective of my own perspective. What was the uh, biggest surprise there anyway? Rallies and kind of take on a life of their own uh, and uh, Sometimes things don't work the way that the planners had, sometimes for the good, you know, not always for the bad, but for the good. And so, so were there any surprises there? Were you? The only surprise that maybe I Maybe in a positive or a negative right, way. The only, the only thing that surprised me was how smoothly it ran. I have been involved, <laughs> as again, as I've been involved in so many things, that, you know, you have to expect the unexpected. And right. that was not the case. Um, the organizers knew about the several permits of um, counter-protesters, so they were prepared for that. Right. Um, I don't know if the organizers expected it to be as big as it was, so maybe that was a surprise. But for me, um, I was just, my biggest surprise was how smoothly it ran. I think people were excited, people were Mm -hmm. pumped up, and even in as hot as it was, I don't think we lost a lot of people to saying, okay, I've had enough time for me to move on people stayed till the end and had a and few people pass out we did have a few from the heat during exhaustion. the rally but handled it really well uh, yep and yeah. it was the organizers were prepared and that's yeah, that was up the best around way. 100 degrees that oh, afternoon wasn't it it was it was really hot as expected yeah. in oklahoma summer yeah. but that did i not call that stop. las vegas
Vegas hot. <laughs> if, if you've ever been in Las Vegas in the summertime, you know that. You have that, that, you have that dry yeah. heat. But uh-huh. people were excited to be there and just felt it necessary to be there. So I think people yeah. kind of yeah. endured the heat no matter what. Did the counter protesters turn up in the numbers that they that they wondered if if they were going to? I I like counted thirteen people stomping around there with Confederate battle flags and things, and and then there was one guy by himself that was basically there just kind of to preach to mm-hmm. the crowd. You know, you have a crowd, and he's going to show up and preach or to wherever. Them, so, yeah, you know, from what I from what I spoke to with one of the organizers, I think they were expecting a larger number of people. Yeah, um, as far as counter protests. Yeah. Um, and but literally, I counted thirteen people right, and in I, that group. Yeah, and I think that was about it. And yeah. even um, the counter protests with the Confederate flags—they were there for, you know, a few minutes, and then they were gone. So it didn't. And then t- the police ushered them off. Ushered I saw them. the police talking to all of those guys mm-hmm. well before the rally even started. Mm-hmm. So the so the police got together with them and worked out a pretty good understanding mm-hmm. to start with, That's which good. which was a key element to the whole thing, wasn't it? I, I, apparently so. Yeah. I I must admit. I'm a little shorter than the rest of the, the members, so I did not get to see. Um, but there was really a surreal moment when I was when I specifically was speaking, and yeah. I could just see out. As far as I could see, I could see people, mm-hmm. and then I could see the Confederate flag. And it really was a surreal moment for me that yeah. we're over here talking about. We were talking about white supremacy and, and ways right. to dismantle it yeah. um, in a crowd that was willing to fight against white supremacy and then to see this confederate flag i mean i I had to step back and think about this is what we're doing and this is why we're here and And, this is this is america too there's you know we just have these layers of opinion and ideas and all that stuff yeah and um so I was I was probably the most impressed by by how kind of the MC of the whole thing would occasionally stop and just ask certain individuals to please be respectful to the speakers and you know whoever the speakers right. are and 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 so it was you know it was just it just went the way a rally should don't you think I agree and I think yeah. that is what the best part of that the rally is that we can all come together knowing right. that we come from different views. We're going to have yeah. different perspectives, but we can all come together and really try to figure out ways that we can end police brutality, ways right. we can end violence um, in the black community. Um, and that's how change is made is mm-hmm. that different mm-hmm. ideas come together. We don't have to agree, mm-hmm. but we do have to agree that a change needs to be made. Yeah. How do you think, uh, how do you think the police handled themselves at this rally? I think, the way the police handled themselves was as expected. Um, it was a very difficult time for them. I can only imagine what that must have been like after, um, well, seeing starting all the way back from last summer, from Ferguson to the mil- right, militarization right. of police officers, right. um, and seeing how that has um, evolved. That I think they've been on high alert for a long time. Right. And then obviously with the tragedy in Dallas, mm-hmm. um, the mass shootings in Dallas, yeah. I can only imagine how to prepare for that. But they did what we believe was the Oklahoma standard. They were there in a protective manner. I don't think anyone right. felt um, like we've seen in others recently um, right. in Baton Rouge specifically. The same, the same weekend. The same weekend. The Bat- Baton Rouge Police Department took a totally different approach. Right. Showed heavy body armor. Here, right? Heavy body mm-hmm. armor. That's some of the heaviest body armor mm-hmm. I've ever seen police wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, full covering from like, you know, feet to ankles mm-hmm. to shins to, you know, I mean, really heavy body armor. 
um, and you get a mass of police showing up looking that way, mm-hmm. do you think that incites the crowd sometimes? I don't know if it in incites the way? crowd, but I definitely think it. You you have this idea of not necessarily there to serve and protect. Right. You don't have that when you see police yeah. in riot gear at yeah. uh, what is meant to be a peaceful. Uh, resistance, and yeah. I think it's important that that I think that was the difference between what we've seen in Baton Rouge and what our, um, our Black Lives Matter rally was. Right, um, there was um, several conversations with the police department. Right, right. Um, several conversations with um, with those that were going to attend. That this mm-hmm. is a rally, not necessarily a protest. Um, yeah, and I think that makes a difference. And I don't know if that difference is good or bad. Um, Baton Rouge is in a different healing manner than, let's say, Oklahoma City is. Right, right. So, so the sentiments are different, right, and rightfully yeah. so. So, um, mm-hmm. so I think that changes things. But I also think it's never a good look for any city when those that are peacefully protesting right. are met with militarized police officers. Right. I... Um I didn't see any of our police officers in riot gear. None at all. No helmets. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of comfortable. Some are white knit knit shirts mm-hmm. and uh, um, and uh, regular police cars. No armor. No armored vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see any. Did you? I did not see any. Yeah. And I think that changes like how you. It does. It makes a difference. It, makes doesn't it, it does make a difference. Yeah. And instead of and also something that was probably a little more subtle. Uh, that I that I noticed was that that they were maybe grouped up at the most in groups of maybe five standing okay. around, mm-hmm. but there weren't like there wasn't like a big line, a, line. a giant mm-hmm. line of them right. all standing around. Uh, they were scattered out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had some planes, uh, plain clothes people oh, in, yes, in the course. crowd. I understood later on. I right. I didn't notice them, but I I assumed they probably I assumed would. There were, so, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, very few arrests, you know, just kind of one guy arrested, and it's uh, still up for grabs about why he was really there. Right. I did, I did notice. Um, I did read um, some other stories' accounts as to what well, his the police, purpose was. Well, the police thought that he, that you know, he was one of those sovereign citizen mm-hmm. guys. And, but but then, then the Gailey here in Oklahoma City mm-hmm. uh, had a story that really made him out to be somebody pretty different than that. So So it's kind of... It's kind of up for grabs Still right now. Who that guy really was really that was. had the smoke bombs. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, so so you thought it worked the way that that you wanted it to. Right. What did they what What did they ask you to speak about for those listeners who were not there? Uh, just just kind of give me kind of a bullet point version of mm-hmm. what you talked about. For sure. So um, Sharia Moore, who was one <coughs> of the organizers um, of the event. Um, We have worked together on several different issues. Um, So when I approached her a few days after I knew that the rally was going to happen, I said, what can I do if I need to help get water, um, if I need to just help, whatever you need me to do, I can do. Um, And she had asked, you know, is that something possible that you could speak? Um, And I'm very, very fortunate that on a lot of issues I'm asked to speak a lot. So I know when the opportunity arises that you have an opportunity to stand up. And sometimes the best opportunity you can do is just stand back and let other voices be heard. So for a long time, I kind of went back and forth that I don't know if I can bring anything differently to what the other speakers were going to say. I'm I'm very fortunate to know many of the speakers. So I knew they were going to be very um, eloquent and passionate um, and 
maybe say the same things I was going to say. So, um, so I went back and forth with Sheree saying, you know, if you need me, I'm there. But if not, I know there's going to be great words shared um, at that event. And then um, that morning I texted her and I said, I think I want to speak. I think I can bring a different perspective. Yeah. Um, and so she was said, of course, just, you know, a few minutes. Um, and so I really thought about what, what perspective can I bring being, you know, an advocate and an activist for the last decade dealing from LGBT issues to criminal justice reform to racial um, equality? What can I bring differently? And so I really, really thought hard about what do I see? And being a local lobbyist, um, I really work in strategic planning. And I thought we need to come away with action items and action items are what people want because a rally is great and we can talk about the need for coming togetherness, but we need to walk away with some actionable items. And that's kind of where my perspective came from. So I had three point three bullet points um, really to talk about what we can take away with and how can we can change, make a difference. So I talked about doing away with respectability politics and really meaning that a lot of the times that we, when we think about um, how we can affect change, a person needs to dress a certain way or talk a certain way or look a certain way to get um, an insight in that table, to be asked to be at that table. Now, that was a, that was a high point for me. So why don't you go on to the other two mm-hmm. points, and then I want to circle back and talk okay, about that perfect. point right there. And so, and then the second um, way, I, my second strategic action plan really was about dismantling white supremacy and, most importantly, male fragility because we talk about – police brutality in a very general way and of course we talk about the racial context which is really really important but one aspect I don't think that's talked about enough is that for the majority of those police brutality matters and um, issues that many of the time it's officers that are male and we and we don't talk about that enough and 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 these are officers that um, have perpetrated violence on men and women um, so we really, so I really wanted to kind of bring that to light. That not only is white supremacy part of the problem with um, police brutality, but also male fragility. That there is something going on that um, that is not talked about, and and we do not want men to feel. And and is there a is there a threat that men feel when coming up against um, a person of color being pulled over or being approached on the mm-hmm. street? So so talk about that term because some of the listeners may not be mm-hmm. familiar with the with the the expression male fragility mm-hmm. let's so, so talk kind of expand that a little bit so when i talk about male fragility i'm really just talking about the threat that men may face um and the fragile state that men may have and being feeling threatened by um strong women or strong men or men and women that may not look like them um right. and just feeling that any type of maleness that they encompass could feel threatened um, just because of the way a person looks or acts. And and we really, that term is, is fairly new, I think, to the context of police right. brutality. Yeah. And really through the context of social justice, we don't really talk about enough about right. male fragility yeah. Yeah. enough. And I think that male fragility is seen on both sides because, mm-hmm. as many people know, the Black Lives Matter movement really has um, been led by women. Yeah. And some people yeah. do have issues with that. But we do forget that a lot of the movements, the civil rights movements, right. women were very much a very part much. of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and but may not be the leaders that we know of. Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, okay. Why don't we go back to that first point, which I thought 
you know, I've been to quite a few rallies and things like that. And I thought that was kind of a unique point mm-hmm. that the thing about dropping, you know, dropping the uh, whole focus on, on, on respectability. Mm-hmm. So, so um, especially some of our white listeners may not be able to understand uh, kind of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's kind of something that's better understood within a black group of people talking about it. Uh, it it's a it's from a particular black uh, standpoint so so kind of explain that to us a little bit there um, so, uh, about what that means and what that means when a black person talks about that issue so respectability politics i think really comes just from a minority versus majority group right. and that really could come from um from a woman's perspective or even a person of color's perspective but one the idea that if you know if a person dresses a certain way, acts a certain way, then she will have this um, better able to 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 talk and communicate right. and, and able to get their ideas out to this to um, a majority perspective. But I think what respectability politics really talks about that we should be challenging those mainstream values as opposed to conforming to them. And that's what I don't know is talked about enough that um, People of color, women don't need to necessarily conform to mainstream, but instead of talk about why we're not challenging your values, why we're not challenging your views as to why your way is better than the other ways. So it seems to me that that's a that's a really difficult kind of conversation to have because when um, when somebody especially an older black person says if you create enough stumbling blocks then people are going to stumble mm-hmm. so so don't create all these other stumbling blocks uh dress nicely mm-hmm. speak well um uh don't act angry and more people are more likely to listen to you is that is that what you're you're kind of working against well, there definitely. is that is that we don't have to act a certain way before we're going to be heard demand demand to be heard first demand to be heard first exactly and i think that's such a great point and that's going back to the challenging the Mm -hmm. mainstream values right is that that's where our focus needs to be right and and that's difficult for a lot of people and that's difficult for people to grasp as to what do you mean by that like what do you mean why do if i'm initially challenging the mainstream then how am i going to get the mainstream to value us yeah. And that really goes back. Or to even listen to, to start even with. listen, right? right. And, and that goes back to why it's so important to have people to understand the need for it, right? right? Not just people of color understanding the need to challenge it, but people, you know, white people as well as to be like, okay, maybe this is what they're talking about, respectability right. politics. When I have to, when I'm asking you, or I'm thinking differently, or I have my implicit biases to come and say, right. oh wait. That's what they're talking about. That's what that means. You know, and, th- and that stems from, like, microaggressions. And we don't talk about microaggressions right. or yeah. not. And they're very, right. you know, it's from well-intentioned people um, that have little insults, um, mm-hmm. little, you know, little jabs that well-intentioned people say mm-hmm. or do or act that they don't think about. Right. Um, and one of the one of the best ways, um, at least in my experience, is to really dismantle that and do away with is really to have those conversations. And for people of color um, to, to step up and say, hey, that's an ouch. That's what this is. This is mm-hmm. a microaggression. You're, you're exhibiting your white privilege 
um, you know, in a very, right. in a, in a very, I guess, safe environment, whether that's at the office, mm-hmm. whether that's mm-hmm. talking with friends, um, that's important to call those microaggressions right. out at the time that they occur. Yeah. Because they, they build up. Of course they, they build up. So mm-hmm. eventually you're going to have a big problem if you have this aggregate of microaggressions perceived well, right, and, and in, you know, in, in any kind in, of any context, way. right, yeah. in any context, and and they can build up in a lot of different ways. It right. may not necessarily be, be that someone will eventually be so upset mm-hmm. and say the wrong thing to you, but it could just build up as far as how a person feels and how right. they are perceived and yeah. their how productive they are at the office. If that's mm-hmm. where these microaggressions right. are happening, yeah. so yeah. it's not so so that build up can can manifest in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, from the standpoint of the majority, you know, the majority white population, uh, not not demanding that black people fit into a certain mm-hmm. a certain mold of respectability first before you're going to be heard, mm-hmm. is is what you're talking about, exactly. then, right? That's, that's exactly. And then and then, but I also hear that as a as a real conversation within the black community as well. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like well. Um, I mean, I can I can hear your grandparents saying, "Now look, if you you know if you say this curse word or something, mm-hmm. you're going to turn somebody off and they won't hear you anymore." Oh, of course, you of might, course, you and might have had that conversation oh. with your grandparents, <laughs> with my with, parents, yeah, with your parents, yeah, and right, and that and that's and that could be from conditioning, and sure, and yeah. I think there is there is a. Well, I don't think it's too fine of a line, but there is a line mm-hmm. between being respectful, right, right, and then uh-huh. being, um, you know, condemning respectability politics, and right, yeah, and I think from my experience the worst place respectability politics occur is really at the policy level. Those legislators that are making policy yeah. changes. Yeah. And if we can if we can make sure like that everyone should have that ability to talk to a legislator right. um about something that they're dealing with minus the idea that I've got to look a certain way or dress a certain way for yeah. you to take me serious right. about right. why this is a problem and why policy change right. changes need to yeah. be made. And I see that a lot with the work that I do. Yeah. And I think yeah, I think even on a fairly micro level, that that kind of thing happens. Also, mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a 63 year old white man that has an earring, mm-hmm. and that even gets in the way sometimes. Oh, of course, mm-hmm. but it's but it's okay mm-hmm. because you know that's that's a part of who I am, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, so there's there's no limit to what can get in the way. You can't possibly eliminate all the things that might possibly get in the way. You simply have to speak, don't you? You're right. You just have yeah. to simply speak up. And, yeah. and that's what I hope, if anyone got anything from what I said <laughs> on Saturday, is that uh-huh. at those moments you have to either call out someone or call them in and right. speak up and speak out. Right, right. And in an office environment, that that just simply has to do with having a conversation. Of right? course. That's because you're going to see each other from now on unless that's your last day at work or whatever. <laughs> right. uh, so a lot of times that that has to be where the conversation starts. Exactly. And then I think that's where change really occurs is those, you know, around the water cooler conversations. (laughs) When you hear, Uh um, when you hear coworkers not meaning to be offensive, but are offensive and there's a way, a loving way to do it. And there's Mm -hmm. a way, um, to do it in a manner that, um, will not be insulting or cause too much, um, um, 
divisiveness uh, between. Right. There's yeah. definitely ways to do that. And I think that's a part and part of making sure that we are continuing learning how to do those and teaching each mm-hmm. other how to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, but also recognizing, you know, within that, oh, this may not be a safe space for, you know, a person of color mm-hmm. if they're the only person of color in the office. So what can I do to make sure that that person of color right. feels safe, feels welcome enough to talk to have those conversations right and how and you know and, and i believe that starts with co-workers but i also believe that starts with management and in, in mm-hmm. setting a tone for this is the type of office space we want to have right and if there are any of those um microaggressions occurring if there are any of those offensive words being said creating that space so people of color and you know people of color and their white counterparts right. can go to and and have those conversations yes Yes, and those those are difficult conversations to Always have. Always difficult. Always <laughs> difficult. And I, you have to work so closely together. Yeah. And by all means, I do not want to come across that these are easy conversations, that these are not yeah, difficult conversations, right. because I do recognize that. I do. Mm-hmm. I think we all recognize those are difficult, difficult conversations. But if we want to make that change, and if we want to have that impact, then those are the conversations we have. Absolutely. Yeah. One more thing I want to talk about here that came up at that rally, which I thought was really good. Um, a a comeback to the Black Lives Matter thing uh, is all lives matter. Mm-hmm. And my perception all along was that that was just a way of trying to, to neutralize the message of Black Lives Matter. Of course, matter. of course. Um, uh, I haven't met any, any black person that would not agree that all lives matter. Correct. You know, I, Correct. You know, I, I just... I haven't. I haven't right. met anyone like that. So, so uh, uh, talk a little bit. Talk a little bit about about what kind of teaching went on at the rally, specifically about that all lives matter comeback like mm. that. I I thought it was very effectively addressed at and the rally. I agree, and I think um, we've we've had because the all lives matter you know context is been going on for a while that we've had a lot of time to really think about strategically <laughs> like how do you deal with all lives matter right. and we saw the great signs that said you know until black lives matter then right. will all lives matter right yeah or that they're too they're, they're not mutually exclusive ideas right but um but it's presented that way but often, it is it's it? presented yeah. that way often but i think people can grasp the two ideas and sure. and the best example was the young um the young um Representative, soon to be representative, or I think, I guess, candidate, yeah. um, who talked about who gave the house on fire analogy, where, <laughs> you know, if my house is on fire, right. you know, I want you to put this fi- this come put the fire come out. put the fire yeah. out, right? I thought that was great. So I think yeah. that was a great analogy, uh-huh. but I, I do come from a different perspective, personally, even from that, that mm-hmm. it's time for us to, for those that are arguing all lives matter, then it's. It's an argument that I just don't have the patience and, and willingness to fight anymore. If you have to argue all yeah. lives matter, then you're not truly trying to find a solution. I've been a white man for a long time now, <laughs> and, and I never heard anybody say all lives matter until the Black Lives Matter movement of course, came out. Of course. So, so you have to look at timing. Of course. It isn't like Abraham Lincoln said that. <laughs> right. It's coming uh, from a quote. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln didn't say that. Right. Uh, mostly white people and right-wing radio mm-hmm. guys started saying that uh, when the Black Lives Matter. Of course, right. Out. So we, we, we know the context of the All Lives Matter. So sure. at some point, 
um, we can either focus our attention and our energy to mm. trying to dispel all lives matter, right. or we can reshift and focus on ways that black lives matter is part of our everyday changes right. to hopefully policy changes that will ultimately be better for Oklahoma and then the rest of the world. Yeah. And it is, and it is good that, that people are saying that any kind of life matters. Mm-hmm. That, that That's great. That's, that's an advancement there, but yeah, well, we need to understand where that came, where that really came from, right? And, and, and why it's being used, and why it's being used. Yeah. But again, my focus and energy went really will not be to those to those screaming at me that all lives matter. They're they're, they're not there to help with the solution, and that's okay. We'll figure a way. We'll come together on some other issue, and that's fine. Thank you very much. It's been a great interview. Okay. I really appreciate this, and I appreciate. Uh, you're speaking at the rally and the the great job that you did at the rally thank you for being there i think um that was the best part of just all the different media that were there um and importantly just capturing the moment right this is for us i think for my generation i'm 35 you know we haven't had that civil rights moments that my parents had or that my grandparents had so this is our moment and if we're not willing to stand up and speak out then we're really doing a disservice and not honoring our our ancestors before. So I think those that everyone that attended the rally, but more importantly, like this was the first step. It's about what's to come, and I, I do believe that there are action items um, that are that are in place now that will continue on to really make that change that needs to happen, specifically in Oklahoma City and hopefully Oklahoma as a whole. Tamaya Cox, attorney here in Oklahoma City, profound speaker at the Black Lives Matter rally. Thank you very much. Thank you. That concludes our interview. There are several ways for you to catch this weekly podcast. Go to our website at intersectionsok.com where you can subscribe, listen to episodes, read the backstory, and see photos of our guest. On iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and our Facebook page, we are Intersections Oklahoma. On Twitter and Instagram, we are Intersections OK. I always want to hear about the cool people in your life, so write to me. My email address is ideas at intersectionsok.com. Steven Tyler is our awesome production advisor, and I am your host, Brett Dickerson. <laughs>